Good morning, good morning. Great having you all here today. Thank you so much for being part of Local. Um, if you didn't know this, let me catch you up just real quick, uh, that since the beginning of January, we have been going through uh, kind of what we've been calling a slow study through the Gospel of Mark. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and each of those authors and writers inspired by God, but also trying to speak and write to an audience with really one main purpose. Who is Jesus? Jesus. Like, who is this Jesus that came and lived, did incredible things, taught some amazing things with incredible authority, died and rose again, and then had a bunch of these followers. So uh, each of the Gospels is writing to a specific audience, and we're going through the Gospel of Mark, most likely written to the Gentiles, the non-Jews in Rome. And as we've been going through this study, one of our main things we're trying to do is to go slow. Right? It's not just to hurry up and read it and move on. It's not to hurry up and get through it so we can learn something else. It's we're just like sitting in the gospel of Mark, slowly going through it. Now, I will confess, we go kind of fast on Sundays. There's a whole lot and a whole lot of little time. So I talk very fast on Sundays. But as we get into Monday, oh, can we have a posture where we start to slow down and sit with those passages for the remainder of the week. So here's how you can be on this slow journey through Mark with us, is let me put it up on the screen. Go ahead and get your phones if you're not part of this reading plan yet. Text Bible to that number, 706-903-9099, if you're not part of that yet. Uh, if you wanna go ahead and opt in, here's what'll happen. You will get a text message on Monday morning, usually around 10 a.m. or so, so kind of late morning. And from that text, you'll get, here's what we are to read out of the Gospel of Mark this week. It's usually one, maybe two chapters, no more than two. And from that, you'll see there's usually a question or a thought or a prayer just to kind of help focus our reading. But then once you finish reading that passage for the week, are you done? No, no, we're going to reread that on the, on the next day on Tuesday, and then we're going to reread that on Wednesday. The whole point is to stay in that scripture, stay in that passage beyond just hurry up and read it and move on. Because there's so much that I think God would want to show you and teach you and, and speak to you about in regards to what that means to just kind of sit in his word a little bit longer, all with the intent and the purpose of getting to know Jesus just a little bit more. So if you're not part of the text, go ahead and jump in there. Uh, would love to be able to have you be part of our church as we go through it. Uh, so today, uh, the chapter we're going to look at is chapter 8. So if you've got your Bible, be in chapter 8. And if you've skipped ahead at all, and if you've seen how many chapters there are in Mark and you've done that, uh, you'll know that today marks halfway. We were halfway through the gospel of Mark, and that's significant, not because like, oh, yay, we're almost done, not that, but we are halfway, and that's significant because what we're going to see in chapter eight is pretty fascinating. We see the end of what we're going to call phase one, and we're going to see the beginning of what we will call phase two, right? Up until this point, and even with a little bit of what we're going to read in chapter eight, the gospel writer, John Mark, is doing everything he can to be crystal clear about who Jesus is. In fact, go back and look at chapter one, verse one. He makes it very clear from the get-go. This whole thing is about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and the good news that he came for us, right? So it's, he's very clear out of the gate. But then throughout his writings and throughout the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the healings of Jesus, all the way through, each and every one of those teachings, healings, and miracles is always pointing back to who Jesus is. Where does he get his authority? Well, he's the ultimate authority. Where does he get his power? Well, he's the son of God, so he has the ultimate power. Where does he have the authority to teach like this? Well, it's kind of his word so he can say it, right? So each of those teachings and miracles and healings keep pointing back to who is this man? Who is Jesus? That's what like, we would call phase one is all about. 
Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. And we're going to see that actually happen here in chapter 8. But then we're going to see like a period put at the end of phase 1, and then we're going to see Jesus shift to what we'll call phase 2 of his ministry. Where it's, that's great that they know me, that's great that they know I'm the Messiah, that's great that they know that I'm Savior, that's great that they know that I'm the Son of God, but what does that actually mean? And what does it actually look like? What does that look like for us as followers, right? Because if we're following Jesus, the Son of God and the Messiah, our Savior, where he goes, as followers, we go. So we see Jesus kind of shift to move away from just talking about who he is to also speaking to, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And what does that mean and look like for us as followers? So does that make sense, phase one, phase two? So let's kind of wrap up phase one. We're going to see that here, and then we will spend most of our time kind of shifting to what that actually looks like for us, because we got to look at what it looks like for Jesus. So chapter eight, if you got a Bible, I think it's helpful to see it in print. If not, you can scroll through and be on an app. Uh, No problem. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles out in the lobby. That's our gift to you. Make sure you grab one on your way out. Mark chapter eight, verse 27. Here's what we see. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, that's important, we're going to come back to it. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? What a good question. We've been talking about this the entire time. So what have people started to say about me? Verse 28, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. So that question makes total sense as Jesus is shifting out of the here's who I am phase and moving into the what it actually means phase. He wants to make sure that it's time to move on. Like we're all good, right? Like people, people understand this or, or if they don't, I'm going to help them understand that. But he's setting himself up to really lean into the disciples. We'll see here in a second. But he wants to know, what do people say about me? Which again is all about the beginning part of Jesus's ministry, that he is the Christ, the son of God, the Messiah. But what I really want us to lean into is as they were walking along, like some of Jesus' teachings are, are coming out of miracles or coming out of healings. That's not the case here. Some of Jesus' teachings come out of an intentional teaching moment, what we might call like the Sermon on the Mount kind of a moment, where he gathers everybody together, and I have something I want to teach you. That's not this moment either. What we see here is Jesus is literally just walking along, which means he's going from point A to point B, and he starts to have a conversation, ultimately a teachable moment. The reason that's important is because this is language that Mark is going to use pretty consistently for the next several chapters. This idea that Jesus and his disciples are moving along. So let me just read ahead. You don't have to turn there, but in chapter 9, we see that language again. Leaving the region, they traveled through Galilee. After they arrived at Capernaum, they settled, and they continued after they settled for a while. Chapter 10, then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea. And 17, as Jesus was starting out on his way towards Jerusalem, now they were on their way up to Jerusalem as they approached Jerusalem. So all of this language around their moving, if you know anything about uh, geography in that part of the world, which I won't hold you to it, I'll just tell you, and you can look it up later if you want, they're moving south towards Jerusalem. So every step along the way, Mark wants us to understand Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem. And what's the significance of that? It's more than just a city. That's where the cross is. That's where he will go and be crucified on the outside, outside of the city walls in, in Jerusalem. And so from here on out, It's really the story of Jesus getting closer to the cross, continuing to move along, continuing to move forward. So all of his teachings, all the stories, all the moments, all the miracles and healings that we see from this on, this point forward is all continuing to be very clear 
that Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross. Here's how Jesus kind of turns the question back around. So who do they say I am? Who do people say that I am? A bunch of different things. People are still kind of figuring it out. But verse 29, then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Oh, it makes it personal. Not just what does everybody else say, who do you say I am? Peter replied, if you know anything about Peter, if you study him in the Gospels, he's the first. Like he is just foot in mouth kind of a guy. Even when he's right, there's still some foot in mouth moments, which we will see. Uh, but he's right. I love his response. Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them, verse, verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So who do you say I am? You've been walking with me. You've been watching me. You've been listening. You've been observing. Jesus even sent them out to go and teach the good news. And through all of that, he asked a very important question. Yeah, 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 I know what everybody else is saying about me. Yeah, they're still trying to figure it out. But what about you? Those that are closest to me, who do you say I am? And Peter is absolutely right. He's the Messiah. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, fully man, fully God. You came to save us. And that's kind of where it puts a period at the end of phase one, right? That's what we needed to understand. That's what Jesus needed his disciples to know, that Jesus is the Messiah. Check that off. They get it. They finally understand it. Now we're going to see him move into phase two, and this is where it begins to get a little interesting. Did you catch verse 30? Let me read it again. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. That doesn't seem right. Like, it feels like, did we write, is that, mis- is that misinterpreted? Like, what do you mean, don't go tell anybody? I thought we were supposed to go and tell. Jesus is the Messiah. Peter declared it. Peter was right. Most certainly he is the Messiah, the Son of God. So shouldn't Jesus' next words be, so go and tell? Go to everyone you can find and tell them that I'm, that I'm the Messiah. That is what we would assume, That's what would make sense, but Jesus says, no, 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 you are right. Absolutely, Peter, you are correct, but don't tell anyone. And it's not even just like, don't tell. There's a warning attached to it. Do you see that? It wasn't just, hey, please don't tell anybody. It's, don't you dare tell anyone. And it's like, that's not what we would expect. Let's kind of dig through that a little bit. Why would Jesus tell his disciples, yes, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but don't tell anybody? Here's why. That word Messiah is a loaded word. It's a loaded word. It has a lot of expectations attached to it. It has a lot of different meanings attached to it, right? If you were to look at Daniel chapter seven, that's a great thing to write down if you wanna dig in a little bit more. There's a section that speaks to the prophecy of the coming Messiah. They call him the son of man. That's what we're reading here. And so if you wanna read Daniel seven, there it is right there. Uh, Read that a little bit later, but that's kind of a picture of this Messiah, So when you would talk to a Jew and talk about the Messiah, everybody kind of wasn't totally sure what it meant. They had their ideas of what it meant. They know what they were taught from other people about the Messiah. They'd read some of the scriptures that kind of helped paint a picture of who this Messiah would be and what he would do. And and he's supposed to be this this eternal king that that ushers in a, a new kingdom. So they had all these ideas around the Messiah. But what's interesting is there's there's parts of that that are not correct. And so Jesus was a little worried, like, man, if you start going and telling everybody that I'm the Messiah, like, man, you're not even totally clear on this. Like, I've come to realize this. Um, I, I had a birthday a few weeks ago, and so I know I'm getting older, and I'm starting to notice that a lot more. I don't know if you remember those moments in your life where you're like, ah, I'm old. Like, I, I've, hit, I've hit that. I'm very, very aware of that now. And the reason why was because when I did student ministry, I mean, I made it a point, like, to, to understand students and to relate to students. And I remember thinking and even saying, 
I am never going to be that old guy that cannot relate to young people. And I've officially passed that. I'm, I know I'm not cool now. Like, I used to like try to fake it. Now I'm just so aware that I'm not cool and I don't understand what kids do these days. Um, even that statement makes me sound old. And so we're sitting at the table, got three kids. My two oldest are boys and my oldest, Connor, he's gonna be in middle school next year. And so like I'm seeing that with him. We're sitting around the table and Connor says this word that I've never heard used in this phrasing before. He said, oh man, this is so bussin'. And I'm like, what did you just say? What, what did you call me? And he says, no, 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 like this is bussin'. And I'm like, can you use it in another sentence? <laughs> he says, dad, this dinner is bussin'. And dude, I'm racking my, I'm like, can you spell it? Am I th-? I'm like, because when you say bussin', what I think of is you're getting on a bus and you're gonna be bussed to another place. And I'm like, I'm not aware of any trip you're taking. What's bussin'? He says, dad, it means cool. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. That is not what bussin' means. And then some of you might know this one, and I'm pos- I cannot use this in, in a sentence still. I'm still not totally sure on how to use it, but the word drip or drippin. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. My kids will say something about drip or drippin'. I'm like, what, what's leaking? What faucet do I need to fix? Where's the water at? And they're like, no, dad. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, your clothes. And I'm like, those don't go together. Drip and clothes nothing to do together, right? You could say one word and it means something very different to different people. Some of that has to do with age. I get it. Some of that is context. Some of that is culture. Some of that is our own expectations. Let me give you another one. Might hit a little closer to home. The word dad has baggage, doesn't it? Right? Some of you have a great, great dad. You have a great experience with your father. And so the way that you think of dad is very different than somebody that does not have that same story. So even that word, it's like, oh, uh, I I could say it. And that could mean two very different things. That's the word Messiah. It could mean something very different depending on culture and context, expectation, how you were raised and how you were taught. Most people, like I mentioned, most people, most Jews would have this expectation placed on the word Messiah, that this Messiah, again, based on that Daniel passage and some others, that he's going to be this king that ushers in a new kingdom. Most viewed him as a political figure, a military figure, a nationalist that was going to overthrow Rome and rescue the Israelites and rescue the Jews. That's what a lot of people had in their heads. So Jesus is like, we're not ready for that yet. If you go out and start telling everybody, the Messiah is here and Jesus is the Messiah, there's going to be a whole lot of people that have a very different expectation and a different picture of what that was really going to mean. Which is why, again, we've been talking phase one and phase two. This is why Jesus is starting to now explain, so yes, I'm the Messiah, but let me explain what that actually means. Let me help you understand what that's going to look like. And because you're my followers you're gonna see how you are impacted by that as well. So that's what this next part is about. Jesus is not just saying, yes, I'm the Messiah. He's starting to explain what the Messiah truly is going to look like and what a life of following him would take. Verse 31, then Jesus began to tell them that the son of man, again, that's the language used in that Daniel prophecy. Then Jesus began to tell them that the son of man must, not maybe, not possibly, but must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later would rise from the dead. Jesus is super clear. The most clear he's been about his true purpose as the coming Messiah. 
Now, a couple things. If you're one of these disciples that has this image, this expectation, this even hope and want for what the Messiah would be, this is the opposite of what you were hoping for and expecting. No, 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 no. I thought you were going to be like this king that comes in glory and overthrows Rome and like we were going like, to be able to rule. This is suffering. Suffering wasn't part of our, our idea. Rejection, despised, killed. And even though Jesus is very clear that, yes, he will be killed, he will rise on the third day. If I'm one of the disciples, you lost me at killed. <laughs> I didn't hear anything else you said after that. Because this does not fit into the framework that I have been taught or have been thinking or been expecting or been hoping the Messiah would truly be like. So Jesus begins to explain this. And this is all very new for the disciples. What do you mean you're going to suffer? What do you mean you're going to be killed? Because think, if, if you're a follower of his... If he suffers, what do I do? Suffer. If he's rejected, what happens to me? If he's killed, what about me? What about me? All of a sudden, Jesus' explanation of the Messiah and what it means to follow him is very different to what they would have anticipated, which Peter speaks up. Again, foot and mouth moment. Here we go. That's what I love about Peter. Verse 32. As he, as Jesus talked openly about this with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Like, can you imagine this scene? Here's Jesus, they're walking along, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and they have this conversation about who he is. Yes, I'm the Messiah, don't tell anybody because here's what it's gonna take. And then it's almost like, er, everybody stops. And then Peter says, hey, Jesus, come here. We, come on, we need to talk, I know, come here. Hey, I don't know if you've read the prophecies about you before. I don't know if you have like gone through the Old Testament and you're aware of this, but that's not the way this is supposed to go. Jesus, like, there's not suffering. There's victory. Uh, there's no rejection. I mean, it's, it's every tongue and every nation will be bowing down at you. Uh, there's definitely no killing in, in our version of Messiah Jesus. So you can't say that. Like, that's what Peter does. Peter says, you can't say that, Jesus, you're mistaken, you're wrong. That's how, that's how ingrained this picture and these expectations of the Messiah would have been. Now, I don't want us to be too harsh on Peter, because he just doesn't have a category for what Jesus is explaining, right? He is, all that he's been taught and all that he's heard and all that he's been hoping for this is almost the opposite of that in so many different ways. And he does not have a category. He cannot reconcile the Messiah that he thought he knew <clears throat> with the Messiah that Jesus was explaining and showing him. He didn't have a category for that. So we might say this, for Peter, for Peter, he did not, or the cross did not fit into his version of the Messiah. Now hold up there, don't read too far ahead yet. We'll talk about the second part. That's for Peter, like the idea of suffering, the idea of, of rejection, of being despised, of definitely being killed, that doesn't fit into his version of the Messiah. Like I said, before we get too harsh on Peter for, oh, you should know better, let's turn that around just for a second and let's be honest. For us, does suffering and sacrifice fit into our version of following Jesus? And if we're honest, there would be plenty of times where we would say, no, it doesn't. Like following Jesus, I thought he was supposed to be like provider and take care of all the things. I thought I could ask for anything in his name and he would give it. I thought I, I had Jesus in my life because he's gonna make things better. I thought it was gonna be easier. I thought he was gonna give me comfort. Hashtag blessed, like where's that at? 
And we have this version that does not always include sacrifice and suffering. So for us, does following Jesus include suffering and sacrifice? Now, let me back up a second. Uh, Does that mean that Jesus loves us unconditionally? Of course. Is he our provider? Most definitely. Does he walk with us through everything and anything? Yes, he will never lead us. Does he give us mercy? Yes, and it never ends. Does he give us forgiveness? Yes, takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. So all those things are true. We just tend to neglect the suffering and sacrifice part. Here's how I know that's true. Um, and, And I even feel this tension. If I'm telling somebody about Jesus or if you're telling somebody about your faith, we tend to do a really good sales pitch, don't we? Man, when you give your life to Jesus, you get eternal life and and he'll walk with you and he'll love you and he'll forgive you and he'll give you grace. And and even though you're not perfect, he will continue to to grow you into who he wants you to be. Like we tell all those things. When was the last time you said, man, I really want you to follow Jesus because there's a lot of suffering and sacrifice involved. It's awesome. That's the part we usually leave out. And then once that person starts following Jesus and they start going through suffering, they're like, oh yeah, 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 that's part of it. You're like, we don't lead with that, do we? Jesus is leading with that. Understand that he is leading with suffering, rejection, and death. Don't miss the resurrection, though. But we get hung up on those first three, don't we? So even for us, sometimes, sometimes we neglect the suffering and sacrifice. I'm going to put this up here. This is not a rabbit hole we're going to walk down right now. We did a a series through suffering several months ago. I thought this might be helpful today if you weren't here for that or maybe just a good reminder. Um, If you want to take a picture of it, this is great passages to study this week. If you find yourself currently in a season of suffering or the sacrifice feels like a lot right now, uh, the whole point of me showing you this is, yes, suffering and sacrifice is part of following Jesus. Jesus said you're blessed when you suffer because of him. The early Christians consider it an honor. Look at that. They rejoiced that God had counted them worthy to suffer. That's usually not a phrase that we all put together. I am worthy to suffer. The early Christians considered suffering an honor. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said that it's helpful and useful that trials and difficulties, sacrifice and suffering, actually develops our faith and allows us to trust Jesus more. Paul said it in a lot of different ways and a lot of different, to a lot of different people, specifically 2 Timothy. He says, guess what? It is part of life. If you're going to follow Jesus, suffering and sacrifice is going to be part of it. So that would be a great side study if you find yourself in that space uh, today just to lean in. All right, so Jesus showed showed what it's going to look like. Peter's like, nope, that can't be right. So notice what Jesus does next. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and reprimanded Peter. Notice he he didn't do this privately with Peter. He did reprimand or rebuke would be a better maybe word there. He rebuked Peter, but not to embarrass Peter, but to make sure that everybody heard this. Because what Peter said, I'm sure all the other disciples were thinking. So he turned around, looked at the disciples, rebuked or reprimanded Peter, and here's what he said. Get away from me, Satan. Sounds harsh, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. All right, we are gonna dive in a little bit here, right? There's, there's places in scripture where you actually have to bounce around to other scriptures to understand the full context and the full meaning, so we're gonna do that. But here's what I want you to, to keep in the back of your head. Jesus' whole point is that last line, that last line where he talked about what's your point of view, You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, and you're missing God's perspective. That's going to be a big theme for us for the rest of our time. All right, so here's what I need you to do. Go to Matthew chapter 4. 
Matthew chapter 4. The reason we're going to Matthew chapter 4 is because there's something that happens in Matthew chapter 4 that is extremely similar to what we're reading here in Mark chapter 8. Even Jesus' language of Satan, get away from me, or Satan, get behind me, that language is very, very similar, almost word for word, from something that happens in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his ministry. Uh, If you know this passage, you know that he's about to be tempted by the devil himself. We get three temptations that the devil tempts Jesus with to try to get him off course, and each time Jesus refuses and resists that temptation. Here's what's cool. The third temptation in in Matthew chapter 4 is almost the same in what is happening in Mark chapter 8. So let me show you. Matthew chapter 4. Next, verse eight, sorry, verse eight. Next, the devil took Jesus up to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Verse nine, the devil said, I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Verse 10, Jesus is rebuke. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So here's what's happening. The temptation that the devil is putting in front of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 in this specific one, it is a shortcut. It is a shortcut. He puts him up on this high point and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms, Jesus. As Messiah, you came to rule. You came to be king. So Jesus, I will let you rule. I will let you be king. I will give you all the kingdoms. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And guess what? The way I will do it for you is you don't have to suffer. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom and you don't have to go to the cross. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. But Jesus, there's no suffering in that. There's not even real sacrifice in that. So Jesus, take the deal. Take the shortcut. There's no reason for you to rule and have to suffer, rule and be king without the suffering. Fast forward to Mark chapter eight. What is Peter consumed with? Jesus, you can't suffer. Jesus, this isn't right. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're supposed to usher in a new kingdom, not suffer, be rejected and die. Jesus, that cannot be right. And in fact, he rebuked Jesus. He reprimanded Jesus for walking down a path that would lead to suffering and eventually death. Do you see the correlation there? Do you see the similarities? And then Jesus' response to the devil in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, get out of here, Satan. What was his rebuke to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. What was the reasoning? Matthew chapter 4, I worship and serve God only. If his will is to go to the cross for me, then that's what I will do. He worships and serves God the Father only. He's obedient, even obedient to the cross. Mark chapter 8, he highlights Peter's real problem. He says, you're only seen from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. You're seeing suffering as a problem. I see it as what's gonna bring a solution. Peter, you're seeing death as being the end. Peter, I see it as the beginning. Peter, you're seeing the rejection, the suffering, and the death, but you're not seeing the resurrection, and you're not seeing the life. Peter, you're only seeing things through a human perspective, not God's. So that's what Jesus wants to do. Jesus is going to try to teach. Jesus is teaching Peter, the disciples, and then Mark writes all this down so we can learn. That's the tension, man. As a follower of Jesus, we are in that tension every single day. God's point of view and then our human point of view. What makes sense to us in a human and a worldly perspective, and we're kind of having a hard time making sense of how this could make sense. 
right? There's all kinds of different issues and topics and life situations and relationships. We are constantly trying to figure out, am I going to move forward based on a human point of view or God's point of view? Human point of view, super easy for us. Makes total sense to me, right? We don't have to work on that. We don't have to think too hard on that. It just makes sense. Suffering, bad, (laughs) makes sense. God's point of view requires us to know him more and dig into his word. Suffering, Jesus called us blessed. Blessed are those who suffer. The early Christians said they counted it worthy to suffer. James said that it's gonna help me. Man, that's hard to understand, but that's God's point of view. Do you see what we're doing here? Between human point of view and God's point of view. I'm gonna throw this out. This might be a little grenade that you can clean up later. Uh, Human point of view versus God's point of view. This would be great for you to wrestle with personally this week. Every single one of those up there, there's always a tension between, well, what does the world say or what does my human flesh say or what is the human perspective versus what God says and what God's perspective and his point of view is. It's important for a Christ follower to not, I'm not saying like, oh, you take stances. You need to understand, are you viewing life from God's point of view or from a human point of view? Self, how you view yourself from a human perspective versus God's perspective is super important. God's perspective, you are a child of God and you are loved. But he has something in store for you. He calls us to repent and follow him so he can create in us who he desires us to be. So how you view self, human point of view, God's point of view. We can go through the rest. Relationships, finances, emotions, marriage, sexuality, parenting, politics, truth, obedience, generosity, work, rest, prayer, church, serving, suffering. The list could go on and on and on. The bottom line, are you viewing those from a human perspective or from God's? And I'm telling you, God's point of view is harder to see sometimes. Peter had a hard time and Jesus was staring him at the face, staring him in the face. And Jesus wants us to understand his perspective, his point of view. And we cannot continue to just live in our point of view. So the rest of what we're gonna look at is Jesus helping Peter, helping the disciples, and helping a crowd of other people really begin to wrestle with, okay, so if that's what the Messiah is gonna be like, suffering, rejection, death, and then a resurrection, if that's the Messiah, if we are followers of this Messiah, what does that mean for us? What is God's point of view for us following Jesus. That's the next part, and that's where we're gonna land. So let me break these up. We'll kind of talk through them as we go through them. Here's what Jesus says next, verse 34. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples. Notice, it went from a conversation with Peter to then a conversation with his disciples. Now he's just bringing everybody over. Hey, 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 if, if, you, if you're even halfway interested in following me, I've got something to tell you. Come here, I, I wanna make sure you understand this. I wanna be clear If you believe I'm the Messiah, I want to show you what that really means. He starts pulling everybody together, calls the crowd to join his disciples, and said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Not very very inspiring, is it? I think this might be the point where the disciples started to be like, oh, we didn't sign up for this part. (laughs) Like, Jesus, where was this? Like, man, if you remember the story of Jesus calling some of the disciples, like Peter, James, and John, it's like this cool moment out on the boat. Throw your nets on the other side. Oh, my goodness, look at all these fish. And Jesus is like, yeah, follow me, and you'll be fishers of men. I mean, this is, what, is this part of it too? <laughs> what do you mean give up, give up my own way? I mean, I'll give up some things, but you mean give up all of it? Take up your cross, excuse me? Say that again, and follow me. Notice Jesus is not giving a command 
There's no guilt trip here. He's just offering an invitation. If you want to follow me, this is what it's going to take. If you want to follow me, this is where it's going to lead. If you want to follow me, here's the real question, or the real point is, here's what it's going to cost. There's always a cost. Costs are not a bad thing. It's just a matter of priorities. What, do we, what would we rather pay? Which cost would we rather give? So Jesus like, if you want to follow me, just know what you're getting into. You give up your own way. The word there is, is a strong word for denial. Uh, the original language here actually would kind of say like, it's a strong insisting that you no longer associate with. So like, there's a fun image for you. Uh, as a follower of Jesus, you no longer associate with yourself. Isn't that kind of funny? Like, yes, my name is Brian, but I don't associate with Brian. I'm Brian, and I associate with Jesus. And that means like when people see you, they really shouldn't see you. They should see, oh, you're with Jesus. They really shouldn't see much about you, but they continue to see Jesus. And you insist. It's a strong insisting that I'm no longer associated with myself or anything or anyone else, but I am associated with Jesus. So that means we give up some of our rights. We give up some of our, I'm sorry, not some, all. <laughs> all our wants, all of our desires, and we say, I'm giving them up. I'm no longer associated with me and myself and what I want and what I think, and I'm going to associate and follow Jesus. That's what it means to give up your own way. Take up your cross. The real idea here has to do with obedience. Take up your cross was an act of obedience. When the Romans would crucify somebody, they didn't just put them on the cross. They said, you need to carry your own cross to your crucifixion. Jesus did the same thing. So Jesus is saying, be obedient no matter what, no matter what you're asked. If it's God's will, if God's asking you, if God's leading you, your answer is yes. It's leaving your yes on the table. No matter when, no matter where, if I'm following Jesus, my answer is yes, because I'm associated with him. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. And again, it's not a guilt trip. It's not a command. It's just a reality. If you follow me, this is what it's going to look like, and this is what it's going to take. Very different than often what we think. Verse 35, he gives a statement of reality. Again, not a command. Verse 35, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. He's just stating a fact. This is how the world works. If you try to hold on to your life, you will lose in the end. Versus if you give up your life, which the language there actually would mean death. If you death your life, right? It doesn't make sense in our English language. We lose something there. But if you give up your life, if you death your life, then you will actually save it. Here's how I know that this is true. Uh, it, it feels like a paradox, and it is. Right, let's talk about marriage for a second. Whether you're married or not, you'll be able to, you can understand this just fine. So when you, if you were to say, I do, Becky and I did this when we got married over 15 years ago, we stood up there and we both said, I do. And when we said, I do, uh, we were celebrating, but we were also dying all at the same time. She knows I said it. She was in here at the first service. She's heard me say all this. So those of you that think I'm digging a hole, she's good, I think. Um, <laughs> you celebrate, but you're also dying because what am I promising? From this moment forward, I'm no longer living for me. I'm saying till death do us part. It's for richer, it's for poorer, it's sickness and in health. And I'm no longer living for me. I'm now living for you. It's not about me anymore. And I know that because my life drastically changed afterwards. Before I got married, buddies would call, hey, let's go to the movies, let's go hang out, let's go eat. And it's like, like in the morning, like wee hours of the morning that most people are asleep. And, and before I got married, yeah, 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 I'll meet you there. Then I got married. Can't go. Can't go. No, I'm, I'm here with my wife. Right? How you would spend your money? How do you would spend your money like beforehand? is like you'd spend your money on whatever you wanted. You never had to ask. You never had to share it. Uh, you just spend it on whatever you want. And then you get married and like, why are we still going to Hobby Lobby? Like, I never did that before I got married. Now they know me there. 
your space. Before you got married, before I got married, like I had my space and it looked and smelled the way I wanted it to look and smell. Now, if you were to walk into my room, you're gonna see like 27 throw pillows and a Yankee candle. I'm like, that's not me. (laughs) But I'm no longer living for me. I have died to myself and I serve her, right? If you're looking to ruin your marriage, here's all you have to do. All you have to do is do whatever you want, when you want it, without ever thinking of your spouse. That's all you have to do. And your marriage will fall apart. The moment you start holding onto your own life in your marriage, you will lose it. So Jesus is giving us the same paradox. He says, if you really want to follow me, it's really about dying to yourself. If you want some more homework, I know I've given you a lot of homework today, haven't I? If you want some more, read Colossians chapter 3. Paul uses that language all over the place. Die to yourself, die to this, die to this, put this to death. He uses that that death language a lot, but notice it leads to life. All right, next two parts, we'll go quick through these. He asks a rhetorical question. He says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? In other words, is anything worth more than your soul? Here's how I would paraphrase that one. Is there a cost to following Jesus? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. Emphatically Yes, there is a cost to anything. Your relationships, your lifestyle, your goals, your dreams, there's always a cost. Is there a cost to following Jesus? Yes, but is it worth it? My hope and prayer is you would say yes, a resounding yes. Yes, it's worth it. Then Jesus ends with this. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, by the way, adulterous in this context, he's just referring, in fact, God's people and God often is referred to almost in a marriage relationship, the intimacy and the personal side of that relationship. Adulterous just meaning you have walked away from me and you've chased something or someone else, right? So just understand it's a spiritual metaphor for being spiritually unfaithful. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the son of man will be ashamed of that person when he returns, that's the key, in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Here's the point of what Jesus is making. He's like, again, go back to, are you viewing things from a human perspective or God's perspective? And Jesus is trying to help his disciples and followers and even for us today understand, are we thinking of just today or are we thinking of eternity? Like Jesus is clear. Yes, suffering, rejected, despised, killed, comes back to life three days later. And then here he says, and by the way, and I'm coming back again. So are you basing today just on today or do you have a perspective of eternity paul says it this way in in regards to thinking of beyond just today romans chapter 8 verse 17 and since we are his children we are his heirs in fact together with christ we are heirs of god's glory that's great news we love that part don't miss the next part but if we are to share in his glory we also must share in his what what's it say We have to share in his suffering. I just want the glory. There's also suffering. Verse 18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will will reveal to us later. You see what Jesus is doing there? Same thing that Paul did later. Today versus later. Now versus eternity. The human perspective just focuses on today. And Jesus is like, no, follow me. Yes, there's a cost, but it is so worth it. What you experience now is nothing compared to what you'll experience for all of eternity.
Here's a way to maybe rethink it, maybe even think through this question. More homework for you, if you want. Here you go, let me put this up there. How different would my thoughts, words, actions, attitudes, choices, priorities, and life be? How different would everything be if I just thought about eternity a little bit more? I think often we don't think about eternity. We're just focused on today. And Jesus is trying to give us a God perspective, God's point of view. What if we thought about eternity just a little bit more? So the gospel writer of Mark wants to make sure we know three things. He started by saying, here's who Jesus is, the Son of God, Messiah, Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords, fully God, fully man, and he came for us. That goes into the second part. Why did he come? He came for you and for me. We cannot save ourselves. The gospel is the opposite of self-help. You cannot save yourself. You cannot help yourself in that way, spiritually speaking. We rely on the grace of God through his son, Jesus. He takes our sins away as far as the east is from the west. and has nothing to do with how good we are or how hard we try. It has everything to do with his grace that he gives to you as a gift, a free gift, because he loves you. The third part that Mark wants us to know is there is an invitation. So you know him, and you know why he came. You know what it's going to take to follow him. Will you? There's a cost. But I pray you would realize it's worth it. Here's how I'd like to end. Um, I'm going to have you close your eyes, not because there's anything like hyper-spiritual about closing our eyes, but it helps with distractions. Uh, we're in a big room with a lot of people. I want you to not be distracted as I read. Just listen, and maybe God will start to nudge you into what your next step is and what it means to follow Jesus, this Messiah who suffered, died, came back to life, and will come again. As you listen, out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, we're told, either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have also died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. He died for you. What does it look like for you to give your life up for him? See, following Jesus is not about adding Jesus to your life. Following Jesus is giving up your life to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for how much you love us, for your grace and mercy that are never ending. Thank you for the forgiveness you give us, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because you desire to give it. Help us to truly follow you. And Jesus, that's a work in progress. None of us are perfect. We are going to stumble in the right direction all the time. But may our heart's posture be that where we see from your perspective. As you lead us, may we follow, no matter the cost. As you lead, may we follow with faithful obedience. And as you lead, we will follow, because we know where you lead us is to life. In Jesus' name, amen.